How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading from Matthew. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we ask that as we, uh, we think on a story that's perhaps familiar to some of us, this story of David, that you would give us insight and understanding that we might know how we could inhabit it and how we might learn about our own life with you through this story of his life. So meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So in the front cover of your bulletin, there's a quote uh, by the writer Joan Didion, and she says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Now, she's elaborating on something that's just true. <laughs> we, we, um, we encounter life and we immediately begin to wrap words around our joys, our sorrows, our losses, our, our places where we feel perplexed or we feel fearful or we feel anxious. And you could just go on and on and on about the variety of human experience and how you know your own life to be a life that tells stories. Uh, you embrace stories, you embrace ideas that help you connect not just the dots of your past, but to move your life forward into some future. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. And Christians are no different from that, but we do believe this, that the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we read in the Bible are stories that illuminate this remarkable fact about the God who created us, and that it is that he's near us. And he cares about the ordinary things that are happening and unfolding in our experiences of life in this world, our joys and our sorrows, our, uh, our, our struggles and our successes. And you could just go on and on about the, the variety of human experience you've had. God cares about those things. And when you look into the variety of stories of the Bible, what you find and you discover is God's interaction, his presence, his engagement with ordinary human beings. Now, as we come into the space of ordinary time in the season of the church calendar, one of the things we're trying to do is think very intentionally, what does it look like for us to grow up, right? How do we mature in the way we live with the story that God has given us about his love for us, his presence to us, and to help us with that? Uh, this summer, we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into the story of David. Now, David is one of the most told stories. Uh, he has one of the most developed biographies in all of the Old Testament, uh, and he's referenced numerous times in the, in the New Testament, particularly because of the culmination of his story in the person of Jesus, as we just were reading about. Now, why the David story? His story is complex. There are aspects of David's life that you immediately lean toward and you think, beautiful, fantastic, and there are aspects of his life as you read about them, you think, why in the world is your story in the Bible? Because there is nothing praiseworthy about what I'm reading. There's nothing, uh, in fact, you know, David, in, in our call-out culture, David would be called out, right? Because his life is caught up 
uh, at times in the will to power and a misuse of power, a misuse of his own authority and his relationships, uh, the taking of life, uh, his, the poverty of his own parenthood, and all of these kinds of things. They're very, very real in David's life. And so one of the things that you realize when you read his story and that we'll realize over the course of this summer is that you know, for all of his grandeur as a king, he was an ordinary dude. He struggled the way ordinary human beings struggle, and he failed miserably. Eugene Peterson points out, <clears throat> he observes this, he says, David as an instance of, of humanity in itself isn't much. Sorry for those of you that love David. He, he has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent, an unfaithful husband, and from a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain which had a talent for poetry. I think we've read some of that poetry this morning already. But David's importance isn't his morality or his military prowess, but his experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. And one of the beautiful things that we discover about David is that we have essentially a collection of his poetry in the Psalms. Um, that are, it's his prayer trail, right? It's like, this is like reading his private journals that maybe some of the details have been abstracted just enough that you don't, you're, you're kind of think, you think you know what he's talking about, but his, his struggle, his emotion, his concerns could be readily applied to our life circumstances as well. When you read these stories of David, these prayers of David, right? He parades his lived joys, his sorrows, his hate, his love, his obedience, his profound disobedience before God for the sake of the people of God so that they and so that us could also enter a life of confrontation with God. We might live before him and he before us in a real dramatic sense. So we're going to begin the dive today by looking at this first chapter of his life when we're first introduced to him. <clears throat> and this is just after God has rejected Saul. And the interesting thing to note about David in this moment when he is anointed king is that no one is imagining David should be king. Like, no one. And you see that pretty dramatically in the way this story is told. David doesn't even seem to be thinking of himself as a king. It's not like he's praying some private prayers some way, the way you and I might be praying about our future vocation. You know, Lord, help me figure this out. I really long to be the president. I really long to be this, or I really long to be that. David isn't, like, noticeably doing that. He's simply tending sheep in a household in which he is a largely forgotten person. But God sees something, and he brings us into the revelation of that in this conversation he begins to have with Samuel, who is in a weepy funk because God has rejected Saul. So let's think about this story. And there are three words I want to use to frame uh, the things we're going to think about and say, and they are tears, sight, and spirit. So tears, sight, and spirit. So tears, our text opens with God putting a question to Samuel. How long will you weep over Saul, whom I have rejected? 
How long will you weep over Saul, whom I have rejected? Now, we don't know how long he's been weeping, but we do know this, that there's a period of grief, apparently, that Saul, that Samuel, rather, is experiencing because God has rejected Saul as king. Saul is not a great king. And God has rejected Saul, and Samuel feels weepy over that. Now, why would that be? You know, that's, that's a natural question that you would ask when you're reading a narrative piece of of, of the biblical story, right? Well, why is he weeping? Well, maybe it's because of the closeness of their life together, right? There's some proximity relationally, and there's a loss that he feels personally. Maybe that's it. It could be that it's, uh, he feels a sense of culpability even because he has had a close relationship and involvement. You know, Samuel's a kingmaker, right? He, he identifies the kings. He has this role, this prophetic and priestly role in, among God's people to identify and anoint the king that God has chosen. So maybe he feels a little bit culpable. Maybe he feels like, I got it wrong, or I, I misread the situation, or I, you know, he feels something here. And so he's wallowing in perhaps this period of, of lamentation. Or maybe it is that he himself lacks an imagination for a way out of the predicament of a bad king. Have you ever felt that? You lack imagination for what God is doing or may be doing secretly that you can't see because some leader over you appears to be a profoundly unjust person. Samuel seems to lack an imagination for where God is at the moment, and so God strikes up this conversation with him, and he says the time for mourning is essentially over. God's point of view is it's time to move on. It's time for you to stop wallowing in whatever pity or whatever grief that you're feeling at the moment. And it's time for you just to do the next right thing. It's time for you to move on, to take some next step that is in line with where God is. I mean, that's really what God seems to be asking of Samuel. And for this means, for him, it means you need to go to Bethlehem because God says somewhat, a little more literally, that I, I've seen myself a king among the sons of Jesse. God sees something that Israel doesn't see, that Jesse's himself, that the household, the, the home doesn't see. God sees something and he wants Samuel to see it. Now look, what is God doing he is inviting Samuel to enter the risky business of seeing what he sees. And I want to just pull back for a moment because I think any time God invites us to behold what he sees, it is risky business. Here you see that because almost immediately Samuel is terrified. Like, well, you know, God, in case you've forgotten, Saul is still king. He's still on the throne He's still a man caught up in the will to power, he, and this won't go well. Like, you know, he'll, he'll kill me. I mean, you could just imagine the conversation as you just think about your own places where you've been in some hierarchical experience and someone over you, right? You imagine yourself in these places. You've been in them in your workplace. You've maybe been in them in a family situation. You've observed it politically in our culture that if you imagine like someone over you doing something unjust, but you're aware of some better pathway, what do you do? You feel profoundly vulnerable in that moment. 
And so the moment you align yourself with truth and goodness and justice, really with the vision of God for the world, you are putting yourself at risk because others are going to hate you. Others are going to move against you. And that's exactly what God invites Samuel to enter into here, the risky business of seeing that which God sees. And here's why you can do that. Here's why you can take that risk. We've said this even last week. We said that we can take these kinds of risks of love, of aligning ourselves with God, of seeing what he sees, of caring with, about what he cares about, because God is present to our world. He's real. He's engaged. He is Israel's hope. He is the world's hope. He is our hope. And he is a God who binds himself to our histories, our stories, so that we might become and grow up further into the likeness of him, regardless of the story you've come from. Look, I, I, I spend, a lot, I spend a, too much time thinking about life stories, honestly. I, I, you know, but here's the deal. The, the beauty of Christianity is just this, that whatever you brought into the room this morning, whatever joy or sorrow, none of those things are ends unto themselves. Your life is meant to be drawn into the more beautiful and the greater, the grand story of God's presence in our world and the way he would interact with your life through the person of Jesus. And that's what God is reminding Samuel of in just these few words. He's inviting him into the risky business of living inside of this other story, this grand vision of who God is as present to them. Now, so second sight. What does God see? Well, he sees a king whose heart is seemingly different uh, than perhaps Saul's. Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and of course, the town of Bethlehem, the elders in the town of Bethlehem, uh, Jesse's household, they're, they're also afraid. Why? Because why, why? they know who Saul is. They know who Samuel is. And they see this sort of thing playing out in their midst. Hey, do you come in peace? I come in peace. So he calls Jesse's household together, and he intends to discover the king, the one that God sees. And so the parade begins, right, in this moment of festivity. And so Jesse parades his sons in front of Samuel. And it's this really fascinating moment because immediately um, he begins with the eldest. Uh, And look, I'm an eldest. Any other eldest out there? We've got a hard life because we get paraded too early in life, all right? Let me just go ahead and say that on the record. Jesse parades what we expect. The eldest son comes first, Eliab. And he is tall and he is strong. He looks like a king, right? I mean, you can imagine if you're afraid of Saul, you know, you're looking for a counterpart. You're looking for, well, who could... Who could go up against that dude, you know? And you're thinking, this guy is just the guy. Now, I'm just trying to see where you are in the audience. You know, he's the guy. And he's looking essentially at externalities, right? Uh, And God says, no, it's not him. Not so fast, not him. And then we get the the other sons until all seven have come out in front of him, right? And none of them are the point, are the person. And now the point is just this, that the story here seems to hang on verse seven on this one simple question. What do you look at and what do you make your valuations based on? Are you a person who's attached to these externals? 
Are you a person who sees the heart? See, verse 7 is the key. Samuel and all of us get fixated on that which we see about a person. And we have little opportunity to hit pause and discover what is interior to a person, their heart, right? This is how the Bible talks about the deep roots of psychology, right? Of what's your core, what's happening at the very center of yourself. And what God says here is he cares a lot about what's going on in the interior spaces of your life. He sees it. You know, Jonathan prayed that beautiful prayer at the opening of worship. Almighty God, before whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. He sees you all the way down, all the way down, all the way through. He sees the things that you long to not see. Do you have those things in your own life? I have them in my life. There are lots of things I don't want to think about. You have them too. But God sees us all the way down and all the way through, and it is our safety. And the question for us as he looks on our lives is, is do we sort of hold our hearts open to God, or are we living in a closed way to him? In other words, do you want the confrontation with God or not? Do you want to live with all the other stories that have characterized and shaped the way you try to be a human being, or do you want to be caught up and drawn in to the drama of who God is in our world? That's the question. Do you want a confrontation with him? Verse 7 is at once both fascinating and it is horribly convicting, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. I was thinking about this this week. I'm like, all of a sudden I begin to imagine like, okay, how do I live caught up in the stories of the world? How do I live up, live caught up in my own story with God outside of it? How do I live in this world? How do I make valuations? How do I make judgments? Almost any, in almost any sphere of life or any segment of culture or any segment of reality, what you and I have to acknowledge about ourselves is that we get fixated on external qualification. And sometimes it's, you know, appearance, it is attraction, it is the beauty of a person or the strength of a person, it's the height of a person, it's the weight of a person, it's all of these external features that have a certain kind of valuation in your storied culture, whatever that is. You've learned to think of some things as beautiful some things as feminine, some things as masculine, some things as neither, you know, and you've got your stories that you tell yourself and you walk into a room and you see people and you're judgy. I'm the same way. And sometimes it's not things like our physical stature or appearance. Sometimes it's intellect. That's especially a problem in our community, right? Because the University of Pennsylvania is right there. And what do we value but a fantastic education? And so we're caught up in thinking it's the resume game, right? It's like I've got to put some more things on my CV and I've got to have these things in order if I'm going to get the right job. Or if it's not, you know, it's, I've got to have this, this, these, this internship lined up and I've got out of the internship, I've got to have my first job and then my second job and on and on and on. But we're looking at those externals and when you meet someone, you're listening for those things. You want the little flags that sort of mark people off. Worthy of my time, not worthy of my time. Worthy of, we do that. 
And some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't do that. I'm more progressive than that. But let me tell you your problem. So the problem with progressives is that we think of ourselves as woke. We are so aware. And so when I meet someone, I am so curious as to whether or not you are similarly aware. And we're judgy too. How are you marking off people? Are you taking time to look more deeply as you pass through all the spaces of your life? Are you looking at someone's interior life? Who are they at their core? Who are they inside? Sometimes it's appearance, sometimes it's intellect, sometimes it's our progressiveness. How do you value things? God is curious about people. And he is therefore curious about their hearts, about their core, about their interior life. So when God looks on you this morning, and he does, who does he see? Who does he see? Does he see you in a moment of saying, I'm just terrified, God, don't look too closely? Does he see you in a moment of, I'm afraid, Lord, but I'm open to seeing what you see. I'm open to taking the risk of seeing what you see in me. And so you begin, maybe you do this, you just begin to peel the fingers back from your heart and you open it and you say, look, see me, Lord. Behold me, Lord, because unless you see me, I will not live. What does he see? Does he see a hospitable heart? Does he see an anxious heart, a fearful heart, a heart that's curious about his presence? We read these beautiful words from Psalm 139 at the very beginning in which David reminds himself that because of God's spirit, there is no place on earth that he can adequately run from God. Do you know that truth? Because there are all kinds of ways we try to run from God. But what David reminds us of in those beautiful few words is that there is nowhere that you can run. You can go high, you can go low, you can go east, you can go west, you can go anywhere, but God is present to your story in that place, wherever you are, today or in this coming week. God with us. So the seven brothers are paraded in front and none of them are the chosen king. And so Samuel's in a profound moment of perplexity. I thought the household was here, right? Is there anyone left? And the response is intriguing. Well, yeah, I have one more child. He's the runt. I mean, literally, that's the language that's being used. It's not, you know, it's the youngest, but it's the overlooked. It's the, the one not here. It's the one who's doing these other things, the chores out in the field, who was apparently completely overlooked for this festive moment before Samuel's presence. He's not even thought of. I love uh, reading Robert Alter uh, and his commentary on David's life in particular. And he says this, By his sheer youth, he has been excluded from consideration as a kind of Cinderella left out 
to the domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. What a beautiful metaphor. What a beautiful connection to make. David the Cinderella, left out, not thought of, not thought worthy of being in the presence of this great festive moment with Samuel, the prophet of God. What a beautiful connection. What do you see? What does God see when he looks on you and looks on us? So third anointing, the spirit, the spirit of God. David, the eighth brother, is brought in. Uh, the eighth brother, interesting, right? Numbers are important in the Bible. So seven would be symbolic of perfection and wholeness. And here we're learning that David is outside of that space, right? There's just a little gesture. It's a little fling. It's like, hey, here's a little signpost. Think on this for a moment. David, the eighth son, is brought in and he is chosen to be the one. And the reality is that this is Israel's story itself because God reminds Israel that you weren't important but I chose you, I loved you. It's a sheer act of God's self-giving love that constitutes his people. It's all of grace all the way through. It happens throughout the Bible, Jacob, not Esau. I mean, just so on and so forth. It's just all there. It's always there. It's never not there. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's David, the eighth son. God is doing something that doesn't fit our patterns and our natural strategies for living. He doesn't do things that fit what we see, but fits what he sees and what he desires. And here's the irony. As you're reading the narrative, you surely caught this. The irony is that God's just taught this lesson to Samuel, and the narrator of the story is reminded he's caught on what as he begins to look on this eighth sign. He is beautiful. We're back at superficial realities. Right? Have you seen the David? Michelangelo's the David? Beautiful. It's what we get fixated on. But God looks at the heart. It's so difficult for us to see what God sees. It's so difficult for us to want what God wants. It's so difficult for us to live into the story that God is telling in our world. I feel that. You feel that. We live that reality. So Samuel anoints David and the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and will animate his life for his, this vocation of kingship in Israel and will bestow upon him here in this secret moment of clandestine anointing, the spirit of God comes on to David and his story begins to unfold. And over the weeks of the summer, we'll keep looking at these unfolding chapters of his story. But here's something to think about for just a moment as we conclude. David's story is an incomplete story of humanity. We've already said that there's not a lot to emulate in David necessarily. You might read the Goliath story, and for kids, it's kind of fun to imagine yourself in David's shoes because he's got all this courage, and he's such an amazing person. But the most important thing is that he discerns the presence of God. But then you jump into other chapters of David's life, and it's the Bathsheba incident or 
more notably than the Uriah incident as it snowballs into problem after problem after problem. David's life is complex, but he lived his life in confrontation with God, and God therefore promised David that he would establish his royal household forever through a greater future heir who we know to be Jesus. The gospel writers pull all of these threads toward Jesus himself, who was anointed by the Spirit at his own baptism. And from there, Jesus is driven into the wilderness spaces and into his life as Messiah itself to do what? To live out of the Father's benediction over his life. My beloved son, with you I'm pleased. And those words would sort of linger in Jesus' ears throughout every chapter of his own life so that he is always and only loving as he has received love from the Father. He is extending love like that. So when he comes into power, when he experiences power, the power that he possesses by virtue of being God in our world, he never once grasps and closes his fist around it, but he opens his hands and he pours out his life for the sake of others. The Father's loving words over his life animate his life. And no one could say that consistently of anyone that came before Jesus. And no one can say it consistently of anyone that has lived in the aftermath of Jesus. And so the Christian community is a community that is gathered to the story of Christ, to Jesus himself. And we are a community that have been similarly anointed by the Spirit of God at Pentecost. And at our own sort of reception into this community of faith, right? So that what? So that the same words of the Father would animate our living in the world. When I'm in those hard spaces in my life, I would hear the words of God. My beloved son, my beloved child, my beloved daughter, with whom I'm pleased. And I would take whatever next steps with those words ringing in my ears and not all of the other stories that typically ring in my ears. That's the invitation. So when God looks on you, do you, with open heart, see what he sees? Do you see what he sees in you? Do you see and hear what he hears when he reminds you that you are his beloved child? And you're caught up into this vocation of your own kingship, of your own power, of your own life that is given agency to now love as you have been loved in the person of Christ. Do you see what God sees in you, his likeness? Do you with open heart receive the words that he speaks over your life so that when you encounter one another, the people that you were passing the peace to earlier in this service, the people that you will be extending peace to in your life work this week, do you encounter them as people that God sees? And do you relate to them in the love with which he has related to you? That is his calling on our lives. Let's pray together. 
Our God in heaven, we ask that as we uh, think about this remarkable story of David, that you would be with us as we gather to your table, and that you would remind us that we are your children, deeply loved, fed, strengthened, that we might live in this world in the likeness of Jesus who has loved us. So we forget your words of love over our lives. Would you please anchor them in our imagination this morning? that we might love as we've been loved. In Jesus' name, amen.